Well, as we noted uh, last week that at ICM, you guys that have been around, we don't preach sermonettes. Um, sermonettes beget Christianettes, and they're not good for much. We love the Bible, all the Bible. We, we understand in the modern era there are some denominations that simply do not preach certain things because it makes some people uncomfortable. But we, as we've been saying, we don't mind making people uncomfortable. If that's God's purpose, then let it be so. We don't, we don't have a problem with that. So we love all of the Bible, even the hard parts. And as someone said to me recently, which I love, I put it in my journal, a young woman said to me, I've been raised in a denomination where I have been coddled all my life. And I absolutely loved that. And she says, I don't want to be coddled anymore. I want to know what God says. All of it, right? And that was just so powerful and so meaningful to me. Um, I did mention to you last week that C.S. Lewis has that famous uh, statement about the Bible being a book for grown-ups. Obviously, we teach our children from it, and we should teach our children from it. But on, on, a, on, a, on one level, you have to be a right-thinking kind of adult person to, to be able to take it on board. And as we said, to love it all. God means for you to love it all, even the parts that you shy away from and maybe don't like at first. God means for you to love it all. And I would just say lovingly, if you don't love all of the Word of God, you've got a huge problem. You've you got you to get this sorted out with Him. So uh, we endeavor to respect people who come in here. We, we treat them like grown-ups. Um, we don't coddle anyone. Life is too short. Eternity is too long. And honestly, too much is at stake, right? I mean, what we do in here, <laughs> it weighs in eternity. This is not just... You know, I had a guy say to me one time, Jim, I don't want all that theology, man. I just want to get through next week. Well, I, I'm sorry, but God is trying to get you through eternity, right? That's what God is interested in. He's not just interested in you soaring through next week with a happy attitude. You know, naming it and claiming it. That is not God's purpose. God's purpose is to get you in love with Him and get you into eternity. So when we come in here, we're talking about things that matter. We're talking about things that most of the rest of the world will not talk about. I mentioned this verse last week, Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, this is what I named the, uh, the sermon on the podcast site, leaving elementary teaching, let us press on to maturity. So part of what we're going to do today is to continue to move beyond elementary teaching. It's what John 17 is all about. So I want to ask you this. When, was the, when did you feel most secure in your life? When was the, the time in your life when you felt most secure? Absolute, total, complete, supreme security. Have you ever felt that? I, I can think back, and I don't really remember when my first conscious memory, but I do think back maybe lying in my mother's lap, maybe I felt security. But even that security is what? It's a perception. It's not real. You're not really secure in any ultimate sense. Maybe in some superficial ways, but not in any ultimate sense. Insecurity is a major psychological and emotional problem, right? Some therapists get really rich 
talking people through their insecurities. And we know insurance companies make a ton of money because we're trying to buy some security from them. Men long to be secure, but there is none. Not here. There is none. John 17 is talking about security. And all of the Bible, it's talking about real security. But there's no lasting security here. Some of you have experienced it. Loved ones die, spouses leave, health fails, jobs are lost, investments go bad, governments are corrupted, and despots start wars. There is no security here. The only security that any, shall we say, member of mankind can have is the kind of security Jesus is talking about in John 17. We don't have it, but we seek it. It's like something we've lost. Oh, guess what? We did lose it. When did we lose it? We had it. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 3, we lost it. How did we lose it? We rebelled against God. That's how we lost it. We once dwelt in perfect security, but we lost it. We chose it, right? We chose to rebel. We chose to not submit to God's authority and God's command. But we have this, like it's instinct, instinctual. It's, it's like a distant memory. We, we long for this. We long for true security. But we know we are weak and fragile and temporal and exposed. I read, the, the psalm I read to begin the service, Psalm 18, 1 and 2. I'm going to read it again. David found real security. I'm just going to read it again. You heard what I read. But I'll read it again. David says, I love you, O Lord. He's found it. He's found his security. I love you, O Lord, my strength. You're my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Amen? God, who speaks two trillion galaxies into existence. This God, that God is my security. Whatever happens today, that God is my security. Right? David continues. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and my horn of salvation, my stronghold. David has found his security. His name is Yahweh. And if we're paying any attention, we're understanding that Jesus is communicating this kind of security to us in John 17. Jesus is praying aloud. He wants his men and he wants you and I to know that we stand on the rock. And there's a calamity and a catastrophe coming for these 11 men. Their world is about to be turned upside down. And Jesus wants this ringing in their ears that Jesus Christ and God the Father is their security. When everything hits the fan, we're standing on a rock, right? Can you, let me say it this way. Is it apparent to your friends and family that you're standing on a rock when calamity comes? Or are you like the rest of the world? As Oddwall's chamber says, wringing your hands in a crisis, just like everybody else. Do you wring your hands in a crisis? Or can you open them up and worship the Lord? Knowing that whatever happens to me today, it can't touch my eternal security, can't touch it. God did it. He's doing it. He will do it. <laughs> it's part of what we're seeing in John 17. So this morning as we continue in that great chapter, 
God wants you to understand that your security is real. It is omnipotent. And I love this word. You don't often hear this word ascribed to God, but I love it. Invincible. Your security is invincible because he is invincible. I love to talk about God like this. Our security is everlasting. Obviously, as I mentioned, it, we don't have any real security in our health, our family, our career, our money, or in our insurance policies, or in our governments. It's in the fact that we are the fathers by election. We are the sons through atonement. And the Spirit has regenerated us and sanctified us. That is our security. If we call ourselves Christians this morning... Within hours, he will be nailed to a cross, and he wants to make sure his guys have heard this. And, and it's always this way with the Bible, right? <laughs> he means for them to hear it, and then he means for them to live it. And it, it's true for you. When you come in here, don't come in here if you're not going to live it, right? Because you're accountable to live it. If you're going to sit under the preached word, man, you gotta, you got to, you know, be serious about living it. This is what God means for his people to do. Live it. Not just hear it and think about it and go about their business. Do it. To do it. We have seen this. I mentioned this last week that Jesus mentions 10 times in the Gospel of John that his people are a love gift from the Father to him. 10 times. If you want all the verses, send me an email and I'll mail you my notes. I'm not going to repeat them all. Ten times. This is a big deal between the Father and the Son. If you're a Christian today, you are a loved gift from the Father to the Son. This is one reason you can never lose your salvation, right? <laughs> because God did it and the Son loves it, right? God did it and the Son loves that gift. That you're, you're, a, you're a precious gift to Him. There's no way He's going to lose one of the gifts that His Father has given Him. Now, I know you may have some other doctrinal reasons that you know you can't lose your salvation, but I think this is the preeminent one. This is the preeminent one. You are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Your eternal security, as I said last week, it's not in the prayer that you prayed. And please, don't ever say that. Don't ever let that be your testimony. Well, I prayed the prayer to receive Jesus into my heart, which is a prayer that does not appear in the Bible. Do not pray. Do, do, not, do not start your, your testimony like this. As I've shared with you before, when you give your testimony, it should 80% about God, 20% about you. 80-20 rule. Talk about God. Talk about John 17. Talk about the great sovereign God who loved you in eternity past, right? Talk about that. Talk about the Son's atonement. Talk about what the Spirit has done in indwelling you and, and, and regenerating your soul, right? And talk about the sanctification process He's working in you. Yeah, you bring your own details in there, but let your, let your part be detail. Small amount of detail, right? This is how we should give our testimony, that we don't touch God's glory. It's, it's God's glory. He saves His people. Basta. He says, I do it. If you've understood anything about the Bible, you understand that He says that clearly. The other thing we see in the Gospel of John five times, He says, I'll not lose one of them. You are secure. If you've been given from the Father to the Son, you are secure. The Father can't lose one. The Son can't lose one. The Spirit won't lose one. 
we are secure in what God has done. If you allow yourself to meditate on these things and think deeply about them, you'll worship. Your Christianity won't be a small thing. It'll be a breathtakingly huge thing. That God has loved you like this. So the context, John 17, as we talked about last week, this is His farewell discourse. Without a break, as we saw in John 17, 1, Jesus just lifts His eyes to heaven and He begins to pray. And again, He's praying audibly. He wants His men to hear it. He wants you to hear it. Um... This is the Holy of Holies. This is sacred ground. Again, a scriptural Everest. There's nothing quite like this in all of the Bible. By way of review, I just want to pick up here in verse 6 again. Uh, I just want to hit it again. Verse 6, um, Jesus says, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Again, we see the sovereignty of God in the salvation of man. And we see uh, the necessity, necessity of man's response. God elects. You must respond. They kept your word. Real Christians keep the word. Perfectly? No. We're not sinless. We're all dealing with sin. And we will be till the day we see him. When we see him, we'll be like him. We'll be holy like him. We're not sinless, but we're on that path, right? That's not, you know, it's not, as one preacher said, it's not about perfection. It's about the direction. You're, you're moving in that sanctification direction, right? And you're putting down sin. You're dealing with sin. You're repenting of sin. You're confessing your sin. You're putting it down. And there's a whole host of sins. You can look in, you know, you can look in the rearview mirror, and there's a whole host of sins back there that you're not dealing with anymore. This is true Christianity. They do the word. As Jesus says here, if we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, if we understand the particulars of Scripture from the whole of Scripture, if we seek to make sense of Scripture as a whole from the particulars, if we endeavor to say yes to every passage, which every true Christian does, he doesn't read a hard passage and go, I don't like that, and move on and find some other proof text that makes him more comfortable. You know, if, if we're going to say yes to every passage, we, we, we find God's specific meaning in each text. Now, last week I read to you from Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, to let you know that what Jesus is praying about here are the elect. We're not going to go back there. I'm going to go to Romans 8, 28, 30. I'm just going to read it to you from another place. This is what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about those that the Father has given to him. Romans 8, I'm going to pick up 28, famous verse. You guys know it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, that word could easily be trans translated for loved. I know that makes some people uncomfortable. But go study the Greek for yourself. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he called. It was in the song, right? These he called, and whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 17. When he talks about the Father giving 
the redeemed to him. And I'm, I'm going to jump over real quick. I'm going to pick up here in, in uh, Romans 9. Romans 9. I'm going to pick up in verse 10. Romans 9. Uh, Paul's talking about Rebecca here. When she had conceived, I'm in verse 10, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that, listen, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's just sovereign election. Again, some of you may not like it. Again, I lovingly say to you, it doesn't matter if you don't like it. What matters is, did God say it? And, and, I, and I just exhort you, if you don't like it, you have work to do. You're supposed to love it. You're supposed to love it. And if you struggle, you struggle. That's okay, I've struggled too. But you work and you pray and you allow the Spirit to teach. Verse 12, still in Romans 9. And it was said to her that the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Simply God chose Jacob for divine blessing and God left Esau to his own chosen path of rebellion. It's a Hebraism. That's what it means. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Here's that first rhetorical question. Is there injustice in God? Paul says, may it never be! Exclamation point. For he says to Moses, I will have compassion, pardon me, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Listen to verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God. Again, beloved, God means for you to love these doctrines, and if you don't, go home and repent. And I'm happy to meet with you. I'm happy to sit with you. I'm happy to throw you good books. I'm happy to explain all I can explain to you. But ultimately, you have to submit to the truth of the Word of God by the power of the Spirit. You know, the ball is in your court. <laughs> it always is with the Lord. There's no real legitimate debate here for from any cons conservative theologian. The Son is talking about the Father's electing love here before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, that I read to you last week. So God is sovereign. It's clear. All through the Scriptures, it's clear. <laughs> Why did Abraham get chosen? Did you ever think about it? God tells us in His Word that he foreknew, He chose, He elected, He predestined His Son's bride, the church. This is the divine side of human salvation. Again, in verse 6, notice, we see the human side, we see the divine side, and we see the human side. The disciples kept God's Word. It's what born-again believers do. God's election is decisive. Man's response is necessary. And we talked about the tension. Some of you feel tension there. Let it be. Let there be tension. God means for you to trust Him with tension. If it's too big for your mind, if it blows up your heart, <laughs> right? God means for you to trust Him with it. So, 
If you missed last week's sermon, you might want to download it. If you want a, if you want a detailed analysis of the, the terms foreknowledge, predestined, um, go, go, to the, my, go to the podcast site. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, like the first three or four sermons. I go into deep, deep detail about this. If you want to study it further, you can go and download those sermons. Let's look at verse uh, 7 and 8. Jesus says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. <clears throat> For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth, pardon me, came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Verses 7 and 8. Effectively, Jesus is saying, My 11 guys, they know. <laughs> they know I'm from you. They know I'm God, right? They know I'm God. He echoes this down in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. They're one. And Jesus says this a number of times in the Gospels, right? That He is one with the Father. Did you notice in both uh, verses 7 and 8, we again see the human side of salvation. What, is, what does Jesus say about the men who, who respond to Him? What do they do? What do they do? We saw in verse 6, they keep the Word. Now we're seeing that they... These men have known, received, understood, and believed. This is what true Christians do, right? Doesn't say anything about church going, <clears throat> or doctrinal purity, or doing an ordinance, or a sacrament, or praying a prayer. We, we have known that He's God, we've received Him as God, we understood He is God, and we believed. We've lived like He's God, which is what it means to believe. It's not about facts, mental acquiescence to facts. Satan knows he's God. Every demon knows he's God. Yeah, it's always Hebrews 11. God says, this is real faith. It's men and women who live it. This, this is, it's, always, it's always Hebrews 11. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf... I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are, they are yours. We touched on this briefly last week. Jesus says, I'm praying for those Ephesian 1 guys, those Roman 8 guys, those Roman 9 guys. I'm praying for the elect. This is who he's praying for. This is another element of our security. What? What's the element? Jesus is interceding for us. It's in Romans 8.34. He's at the right hand of God interceding for you right now. If you're a believer, right now. You can't be lost for a lot of reasons in eternity past, but for right now, Jesus is praying for you and He's holding you. Beloved, this stuff should make you get on your face. Um, if you're... Understanding it. So does Jesus pray for unbelievers? There's one place in the Bible that I have found that where Jesus is praying for unbelievers. Who knows where it is? It'd be, it'd be a tough guess. It's pretty famous though. Luke 23, 34, forgive them, Lord, for they do not know what they do. There's no other place in the Bible where Jesus is interceding for unbelievers. I think this is significant. Does it mean he's unconcerned about the lost? May, uh, to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, may it never be! Exclamation point. He says, Luke 19.10, He came to save that which was lost. He came to offer freely life to all who would repent and believe. 
right? It's important that we understand that. I've always loved the pathos in Matthew 23, 37. Just listen to the words of Jesus. You, you remember this verse. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But what? Who knows how it ends? But what? You were unwilling. You were unwilling. I would receive you to myself, but you were unwilling. The man or woman who lands in hell, it's because they are unwilling. It's John, what is it? John uh, 540. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. Just come. Just come. They won't come. They won't come. I always love what MacArthur says. John MacArthur, famous preacher in the States. They are unwilling to be willing. So, you know, let's not get all up in a knot about, well, that's not fair that God elects. If God doesn't elect, everybody goes to hell. This is the biblical picture of man in the Bible. Again, you may not like it. That doesn't matter. God has painted this picture for us. If God doesn't sovereignly elect, we all go to hell. Because by nature, fallen man, <clears throat> rebellious man, is unwilling to be willing. Before God who opens his arms and says, here I am, why then should you die? Ezekiel something. And Isaiah something. <laughs> that Isaiah passage, he, God says, here I am. And I think it's in Ezekiel. He says, why, why then should you die? So listen, if a man goes to hell, that's on him. It's not on God. It is not on God. You know, we see this... Um, we see this in how Jesus dealt with Peter and with Judas, right? And multiple times, and we'll see it down here in verse 12, Judas was a false disciple. We, we, we all know that. He was a false disciple. Uh, you'll see down in verse 12. We'll get there in just a moment. Judas was false. Everybody thought he was real. Nobody knew except Jesus Christ himself. He looked real, but he was false. You remember what Jesus said to him? In John 13, 27, he says, what you do, do quickly. You're unwilling to be willing. Go do what you're going to do. Do it quickly. It was different with Peter. <laughs> you, remember when, you remember when, when uh, Peter's trial was coming? Do you remember? Um, what is it, Luke 22? Jesus knew that Peter was one of his. And he says, Behold, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, and your faith will not fail. You're going to stand before Yahweh justified? That's why. Because all that God did in eternity past, all he did in time, and all he will do forever. That's security. <laughs> That's security, man. That's real security. I was... Studying this this morning, I'm just thinking, I have the best job in the world. You know, I get to talk about God. And I get to talk about this unbelievable thing He's done for His people. 
I just, I can't believe my good fortune. Jesus told Peter, it's going to be hard. But when you return, minister to your brothers, he says something like that. I don't recall exactly. Hebrews 7.25 says this about Christ. He is able to save what? Forever. You don't ever have to worry about it. You never have to think again about it. Now, some of you may have crises in your life where you're questioning your salvation, and that's, that's not a bad thing. You know, Paul told the Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Are you in the faith? Does your life give testimony that you love Christ supremely? Now, if your life doesn't give testimony that you love Christ supremely, you've got a huge problem, and you need to work that out with God. You know, the pastor who says, never doubt your salvation, he's ignorant. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Sometimes it's important. If you're in deep sin, man, you need to take a hard look at things. Do I belong to God or not? John, uh, 1 John, it's just 1 John. Just go read 1 John. I went through a period in my life where I really wondered what the deal was. And I studied 1 John, and I came out whole. You know, I had a lot of things I had to get right. But it was a very profitable season for me, is all that I'm trying to say to you. He's able to say forever, Hebrews 7.25. And I want to say to you again what I said to you last week. Don't touch the glory of God. He's sovereign in it, verse 10. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. In effect, Jesus is just reiterating what he said in John 10.30. I and the Father are one. And how was Jesus glorified? How was Jesus glorified? We talked about it last week. How was He glorified? In doing the works of the Father. That's, that's how you're glorified. That's how you glorify God, right? Simple obedience. It just always goes back to simple obedience. Verse 11 and 12. I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, and you have give that which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture may be fulfilled. There are reference to Judas, the son of perdition. What does that mean? The son of damnation um, is what it means. So Jesus He's praying as if the cross has already happened. He says, I'm no more in the world. There's a big lesson here for us, right? He is the, he is the reigning sovereign God. Um, the cross cannot not happen. He's decreed it. It will happen. It's, it's what he told Pilate. I was born for this. It cannot not happen. It will happen. He's, already, he's praying like it has already happened. It's an important, um, very important thing for us to take note of. You remember what Peter said in Acts 2.23, the cross is by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It could not not happen. And I want to say this about foreknowledge. Some people get bent up about foreknowledge. They say, well, what's really being said there is God's looking down the corridors of time and he sees that I'll choose him. Wrong! If you read the text very carefully, he's not foreseeing something. He's foreloving someone. This is a very superficial 
very pedestrian kind of glance at Scripture. He's not foreseeing an event. He's ordaining it. I love that my God is like this. And I, I listen, I know some of you, some of you probably aren't there. Okay, you're not there. It's your job to work to get there to where you can love all that um, God has said. God says, I declare the end from the beginning. My purpose will be established. I, I accomplish all my good pleasure. I do whatever I please. He has foreordained the cross. It cannot not happen. Then Jesus says, I am no more in the world, but my guys are. Right? My guys are. And I, I think we learned volumes here about what Jesus doesn't pray. Listen to what he prays about for his, for his, for his guys, right? He's, yeah, Joel Osteen, this is not going to appear in Joel Osteen, one of Joel Osteen's books. This will never appear in one of his books. Listen to what Jesus doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray for their ease, their comfort, their health, their wealth, their success. He doesn't pray for their safety. He knows that 10 of these 11 guys will be martyred. He says, Father, keep them in your name. That's what matters. And that's what should matter to you. If you lose everything, if you're like Job, if you walk out of here, if you lose everything this week, can you just open your hands and worship God and truly love God? I mean, really love God in the pain, in the grief, in the loss, in the sickness, in the death. Can you love God? This is what Jesus is praying about. Right? His people love God. He's not praying about superficial things. He's praying about the preeminent thing. And yes, God may graciously, you know, bless you in this temporal existence. Praise the Lord. He may put you through some really hard trials. That's His business. It's not your business. That is His business. Because we saw that, right? Romans 8, 28, what's God's goal in your life? Health, wealth, and prosperity? No. What's God's goal in your life? To bring you into conformity with His Son. That's His goal. That's His goal. That's His goal. Again, Hebrews 7, 25, Jesus is able to save forever. He will save forever. And as Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's praying audibly all of these things so you'll know it and then you'll go live it. So we are eternally secure because we're good at religion, because we're Baptist or we're whatever. We're Anglicans or we're Methodist or we're Pentecostals or we're whatever. Wrong! We're eternally secure because we are elected by the Father, we have been atoned for by the Son, and we are regenerate and indwelt by the Spirit. And if your salvation is smaller than that, I think you've got some study to do. Verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy. I love this. Look, look what it says. They may have whose joy? Maybe Gabriel's joy, or, or maybe some lesser angel, or, or some, you know, some, some other person. My joy. How big is the joy of God? Someone tell me. How big? It's big. Right? It's infinite. 
Jesus says, I am giving my infinite joy to my people. You know, we've been defining the love of God through the lens of joy. I'm going to read it to you again. Um, here we go. Biblical love is the overflow of joy that God has in himself spilling out onto unworthy people like you and me to draw them into the greatest experience in the world, namely knowing, tasting, enjoying, praising, and being swept up into the glory of God. That was my bridge. That's why I'm in John 17. We did four sermons on heaven, and I had to go to John 17. John 17, you, you cannot not bridge from heaven to John 17, the new heaven and new earth. This is how we get there, John 17. And Jesus starts talking about the joy, his joy that he's going to give, that will be made full in us. You know, we're finite. How could, how could his joy ever be full in us? It's, it's, it's a backhanded way of saying it'll take forever for you to taste all the joy I have reserved for you. <laughs> it gets me jazzed. It gets me pretty jazzed. Maybe one more of those bridges. Okay, here it is. This is a picture again of that eternal joy being poured into finite beings. Um, Eternity is not static. There will be an ever-increasing union and conformity through all eternity between the redeemed and God while the creature and creator are forever distinct. They will be es there will be an escalating and intensifying nearness and oneness to God which brings infinite joy. I don't... I've got some great verses here, but you, I'll just summarize them real quick. You know, the psalmist keep telling us that there's so much joy in the created order that the sunset shouts for joy. The hills gird themselves in rejoicing. The meadows and fields shout for joy. The seas roar. The fields exalt. The trees and forests sing for joy. They shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, uh, and they break forth and they sing for joy. The rivers clap their hands. The mountains sing for joy. It's everywhere. The joy of God is everywhere. And if you don't see it, You've got some prayer time to put in because you should see it. Yes, we live in a fallen world and there is evil. But God is working that evil for good. The greatest evil that ever occurred was the murder of his son and he worked it for your good. So let's bow before, let's bow before the sovereign works of God. But let's, let's enjoy the the. Let's enjoy all the joy that is present in the world. Again, Jesus is not stingy. It's not some leftover joy. It's his joy. And I want to say this. Um, if the joy of your creator does not inform your daily life, there are at least four reasons why, okay? I, and I'm just going to lay these out there for you. In my view, there are at least four reasons. You're not a Christian. You may be religious. You may be a Baptist, but you're not a Christian. You've never genuinely come into deep relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a possibility. Second possibility. You're a Christian, but you're in deep sin. You're in deep sin. You're in unrepentant sin. You know your lifestyle is displeasing to God, but you persist. And if you don't repent, it's clear that you were never a Christian. Because Christians do repent. Thirdly, you're a Christian, but you, you're, you're, you are not proactively obeying God. I want to tell you as an old man, I can tell you the greatest joy I've had in God is obeying God. This is, my, this is the greatest joy I've experienced. It's just obeying God.
right? And the harder it gets, the more fun it is. Because the harder it gets and the more people tell you, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that, and then God shows up and does it, that's fun, okay? That's true joy. Four, you're a Christian in the midst of deep trial. We all will experience this. But the true believer understands. <laughs> what does it say? Weeping may last for the night, but the shout of joy comes in the morning. Let's finish up here. Verses 14 and 16 through 16. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You guys remember, um, if you're biblically literate at all, you understand how Jesus talks about the world. John 15, 18 to 19, if the world hates you, he says, you know that it has hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you, but because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You've got to expect this. You're supposed to know this. Yeah, I'm going to lose my job because I'm a Christian. My spouse is going to leave because I'm a Christian. My kids will reject me because I'm a Christian. These things happen. My neighbor has cut off, or my good friend and neighbor has cut off relationship because I've, I took a stand and I, I said what God says. This is just going to happen all through your life. Right? People in the world hate the light that's coming off of you. They are convicted by the light that's coming off of you. And they hate it. And this is why there's always tension, right, in the Christian's life. In relationships. It's just part of it. You, may, you remember what James 4.4 4 says. Friendship with the world is what? Pretty clear. Hostility toward God. Um, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2:15 and 16, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We've been talking about that homesickness. If you don't have some homesickness for heaven, there's something not right. There should be some homesickness. We're not home here. We are hated here. We're ready to go and be with the Lord. Jesus does not ask the Father to take us out of the world, but to what? Protect us from the evil one. Now, I've noticed in my 18 years of pastorate ministry, I've noticed that some people just, they can't get off Satan. They're just always talking about Satan. Satan this, Satan that, Satan this. You know, I, I mention Satan to the degree that the Bible does, which is not very often. Obviously, we acknowledge that Satan is real. He is powerful. We get that. We understand that. But he is subject to God. So don't be, don't have some myopic, um, what's the word, focus on Satan. He is defeated. And Jesus has prayed that God would protect us from the evil one. So, this is not a sermonette. There's an ocean of theology here in these 11 verses. Um, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's breathtaking, it's life-changing. If, if we are to believe it, 
we will be fully assured disciples. It goes back to Dan, my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I think it's the King James Version, Daniel 11:32. The people who do know their God, they will be strong and they will do exploits. This is one thing Jesus is talking. He's setting us free. We have all this license to do exploits. What are you doing with your life? Right? What are you doing with your life? Are you just paying bills and, you know, getting by? Or is it to the glory of God, right? Listen, man, you don't have much time left. I don't have, I've told you this, I've got 15 left according to Social Security Administration. As compared to eternity, all I'm saying is invest it. You have license, man. You're secure. Your eternal security is, it's in the bank. Live at large is one thing that the Lord is saying to us. He means for you to live like you believe it. I love that Jesus is praying audibly for his men and for us. The men are going to go through a trial, right? But their eternal security cannot be touched. Why? Because of the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Why? Because of the fact that they are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Why? Because no one can snatch the redeemed out of the Father or Son's hands. Why? Because Jesus will not lose one of His own. Why? Because Jesus is never not interceding for us. Again, that Hebrews passage, He is able to save forever. Who shall separate us from the love of God? No one. And I hope that every one of you understand that. Believe that. And here it is. If you understand and believe it, you go out there and you live it. Simple as that. Christianity is very simple. You live it. <laughs> it's real simple. You live it. Let's pray together.